following sermon is from Faith Bible Church, located in Murrieta, California. More information about Faith Bible Church is available at www.faith-bible.net. We do live in an interesting time, do we not? A time where actually people are rewriting history uh, from the crazies that actually deny the Holocaust all the way to modern-day politicians who deny uh, they wore a mask or didn't wear a mask at a restaurant and uh, at, a, at, a, at a parlor. Uh, interesting stuff. Uh, I think that the worst of all of those who rewrite history are the television series. Uh, it started really back in the 90s. I don't know, this is going to date some of you. Do you remember that show called Dr. Quinn? Frontier Feminist. Remember that? And they would shamelessly uh, warp history, inserting every modern issue of our culture today back into the frontier times and solve it with an anti-God, anti-biblical solution. The facts of history, though, are truly being rewritten today. They're being altered, abused right in front of our eyes. And this rewriting of history, this revision that is occurring about what is true and what is false, this loss that we have on the objective understanding of what is fact, really is an attack on Christianity, an attack on your faith. Our faith is not founded by mysticism. Our faith is not founded in speculation, is it? Our faith is actually based upon historical fact. It is a fact that Christ was born. It is a fact that Christ died on a cross for our sins. It's a fact that He rose from the dead. These are historical facts. And therefore, God teaches us in His Word, these Christ events are real. They really did happen. And they are historical fact. And what we have in 2 Peter chapter 3 is false teachers trying to rewrite history. They're challenging historical fact and distorting God's Word. They're denying the return of Jesus Christ. And they're doing so on one of their key arguments and saying that history has always been consistent, so therefore the return of Christ would radically change that. And therefore, it can't be true. It can't be true. That theory proved to them that Christ will not radically come back and judge this planet with fire. And therefore, in doing so, they have and are attempting to rewrite biblical history. Rewrite it. Which is really filled, if you look at the Bible, with God intervening in history in very small ways and in very large cataclysmic ways. Would you agree that God has interjected himself through the process of history? So if you would, open your Bibles to 2 Peter chapter 3. We are Faith Bible Church. We hope you brought a Bible today. And follow along in the outline that you have, either online or that they handed you as you walked in. If you're new with this, we're working our way verse by verse through the Bible, and we find our, now find ourselves with Peter's second letter in 2 Peter, now chapter 3, written by the Apostle Peter to some churches in Asia, which today is modern-day Turkey. And these churches were experiencing these attacks by false teachers, errorists, who were insisting that Jesus Christ was not coming again. And so Peter's giving his arguments and explaining from God's Word. So he writes in verses 1 and 2.1 in your outline, the return of Christ is certain. 
and he bases that on the word of God itself. He says, these false teachers, they say what they think, but what I'm telling you, Peter, is what God has revealed in his word. In other words, there's a big difference. I'm giving you God's inspired word, Peter says. They're just telling you their opinions. And so what does he say in verses 1 and 2? Take a look at it very carefully. He says, this is now, beloved, the second letter I'm writing to you in which I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandment of our Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. He literally shouts in verse 1, wake up and remember that Christ is coming back in judgment because this is clearly taught by the Old Testament prophets. It's clearly taught by our Lord Jesus Christ. It's clearly taught by the apostles in the New Testament. It is everywhere. We're talking, friends, over 200 promises that Christ is coming in His second coming, both in Old and New Testament. Over 200 Take a look at just three of them listed in your outline there. Micah chapter 1 verse 3, For behold, the Lord is coming forth from His place, and He will come down and tread on the high places of the earth. Matthew 25, When the Son of Man comes in His glory, and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. Crown Him with many crowns. Matthew 16, the Son of Man is going to come and then will repay every man according to his what? His deeds. If Christ is not coming back, friends, throw your Bible away. That's what we've been telling you for three weeks here. Because the return of the King to judge the entire world is everywhere. Old Testament, New Testament, everywhere. And Peter says, you're not rejecting me if you reject the second coming of Christ, you are rejecting the entire Word of God. Not just one little tiny section, all of it, both Old and New Testament, because it is guaranteed by hundreds of promises that Christ is coming again. But in spite of that, these teachers are still going to argue, and so that's point number two, the return of Christ is challenged. It's challenged in verses 3 and 4. These false teachers are attacking believers. And you know how they do it? They do it the way you feel attacked when you want to uphold your faith. They intimidate through mockery. You believe that? Uh, they flaunt their so-called freedoms by living immorally or lustfully. And they attack their thinking with so-called logical arguments. Peter describes these attacks, three of them, in verses 3 and 4. Take a look at 3 and 4 says, know this first of all, that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts, and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. And now in response to those attacks, verses 5 through 7, Peter proves that the false teacher's attacks on biblical history are a lie. He's going to tell you now as he continues on, that this is incorrect, what they're saying. To say that everything always continues on the same in a uniformitarianism worldview, that's verse 4 there, is actually a joke. And you know how funny it is? All you have to do is just read your Bible. You don't even have to study it. Just read it, and you'll find out that their view is incorrect. So today, we're going to exposit verses 5, 6, and 7 and we're going to see that the second coming, point number three, is clear. It's clear. Here are the next 
of Peter's arguments to support the imminent return of Jesus Christ. Peter has already affirmed that the living word guarantees the return of Christ in verses 1 and 2, even though the false teachers argue against Christ's second coming in verses 3 and 4. So now in 5 and 7, he will defeat those teachers' arguments, beginning with three major proofs, two historical and one future. Two historical and one future. And these proofs verify that history isn't constant. They verify that they are under God's control. Under God's control. History does not universally remain continually the same. It doesn't. But is continually directed by the Lord's sovereignty. So His providence guarantees the second coming of Christ. Now are you excited about your future? Christians of all people, even when things are looking the worst on this planet, should have the most optimistic view of the future, right? I mean, think about it. The return of Christ is what makes life bearable for the struggling Christian. Uh, the return of Christ will help you understand what's happening in the world right now. Uh, the return of Christ will satisfy all those who are longing for justice, and the return of Christ strengthens your hope in the future and give you, as Pam said, a happy heart. Today, the Bible proves God's intervention into history champions the return of Christ. So look at verse 4. Verse 4 is when the false teachers sneered, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. And now Peter responds in 5 and 7, and as you read it with me out loud, Know that Peter's informing his readers that the pattern of history proves that God himself interrupts the natural course of this world, which then destroys their verse 4 argument and points to the second coming. Friends, when Christ returns, he is going to radically change this planet. The planet that you now know will no longer exist. When Jesus comes again, it is a radical transformation, and we'll be studying that in weeks to come. But as we read... Look for Peter's three points right here in 5 through 7. And let's read it out loud from your outline, okay? Here we go. Are you ready? Here we go. For when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and by water, through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. But by his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. Three proofs, Peter gives here, that God has and will radically, radically intervene in history. One, the creation. Two, the flood. And three, future judgment. Three verses, three points. The false teachers were critically wrong about Christ. You've got to understand how painful this was. They were teaching a false gospel. They were teaching a false salvation. That if followed, anybody who embraced it would end up in eternal torment in hell if they believed what these guys were saying. So Peter uses some pretty strong language to prove their error. Starting with, first in your outline, the creation of the universe. Verse 5, the creation of the universe. Verse 5 says, For when they maintain this, this view of verse 4, it escapes their notice that by the word of God, 
The heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and by water. John Piper says it this way. The first thing the false teachers ignore is that the world was made by God and that its order hangs on His word. If they were willing to think about this, they would, <laughs> they would no more be locked into one pattern than God is. I mean, understand, if they were to think about this, they would realize that the course of the natural events is no more locked into a pattern than God is. If God is free to speak a new word, then nature is free to change. We need to guard ourselves against the pseudo-scientific notion that nature is a law unto itself. It is not. The laws of nature are the tireless whisperings of the Almighty, and I love this, if he should choose to raise his voice, then cataclysm will come. It is his word that dictates this. So how does Peter refute the foolish verse 4 argument of the apostate false teachers? Well, they shout their opinions, right? God doesn't interrupt the operation of his stable creation. Every season comes by the same. All the tides go up and down the same. Therefore, they wrongly conclude the promise of Christ's coming is not true since that would interrupt creation. And Peter all he does in response is saying, this is what God has already done in the past. God has already interrupted creation. God has already interrupted history. In fact, Peter presents the evidence that the false teachers deliberately ignore. So you want to look at verse 4 and 5 as we open this up. This is what Peter is saying at the beginning of verse 5. He says, for when they maintain this, what? He's talking about when they maintain the verse 4 argument, referring to that and their uniformitarianism theory, verse 5, then it escapes their notice. Now, you might want to circle that, it escapes their notice, because that literally means willfully forget. They willfully forget. That word escapes their notice means in Greek to keep something hidden, to keep something from gaining attention. This is willful ignorance. They're not dealing with reality here. They are seeking in their quest to avoid the doctrine of judgment, in their desire to avoid accountability before the living God and having to answer for their lives to the living true God, they deliberately, he says in verse 5, ignore, that escapes their notice there, they ignore two obvious historical divine cataclysmic events. I've seen this firsthand, maybe you have too. So-called experts, they're sometimes scientists, sometimes theologians, sometimes philosophers. They are selective with their data, right? And then they ignore the facts, they distort the truth, and then they mock you like you're a child if you believe the Bible. And Peter says they deliberately ignore. The heretics in Peter's churches refuse to remember. They're making a willful choice to not recall two major divine upheaval events. The work of God in creation, verse 5, and the judgment of God in the flood, verse 6. That's what they're forgetting. The work of God in creation, verse 5, the universal flood, and verse 6. The natural course of events is no more locked into one pattern than God is. Can I hear an amen to that? God can do what He chooses, when He chooses, when He wishes and God created the heavens and the earth by His Word. Look at verse 5. When they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the Word of God, the heavens existed long ago. 
God created the heavens by his word. Do you remember Genesis chapter 1? You read it. I'm sure you have. The phrase, and God said, God spoke his word, is nine times in Genesis chapter 1. That's how the world was created. God spoke. God spoke. And not only was creation made by the word of God, but it is held together by that same word. And you know Colossians 3, excuse me, 1, 16 and 17. Look at it in your outline. For by him, he's talking to Christ, about Christ, all things were created, both in the heavens and on the earth, the visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through Christ and for Christ. He is before all things, and in him all things what? Not only did Jesus create all things, he is concurrently sustaining all things. Verse 5 in Peter now, by his word, by his word. The argument is obvious. The same God who created the world by his word can also intervene in this world and do so whatever he wishes by his word, right? His word is what made the world. The same word is what holds it together. The same word at any time can intervene in the world because his word is all powerful because it becomes from him. It is his will, God is holding the world together, all together, then and now, by His will. It is His will which determines whether it continues or not. It is His will which created this world. It is His will that judged this world with a flood. It is His will which determines when He will return in His second coming. It is His will which will judge this world with fire. His word, His will, runs this world, not you. Not you, He does. Spurgeon says it better than I do, as always. Quote, admire the power of God's word. It was by the word of God that the heavens were made. It is by the word of God the earth was drowned. It was by the word of God that it has been preserved ever since and will be preserved until by that same word fire shall come to devour all the works of men. And surely as Noah's flood came, surely there shall be a burning up at the appointed season. End quote. Creation was God stepping into the emptiness and bringing the universe into existence. Not by uniformitarianism, verse 4, but by an instantaneous, explosive, six-day creation, verse 5. Everything has not continued in the same consistent, unvarying evolutionary process. The false teachers cannot change biblical history. History is his story, right? His story all of Scripture, including Genesis chapter 1 and 2, supports a recent creation and a young earth, one created out of nothing in six consecutive 24-hour days. The phrase in verse 5, existed long ago, do you see it there, is not referencing billions of years, but the all of Scripture and Genesis strongly supports several thousand years to describe the biblical creation event. In six 24-hour days, the entire universe was created mature and complete. And at the end of verse 5, take a look at it, describes it this way. The earth was formed out of water and by water. You say, what's that mean? Well, the earth was formed between two realms of watery mass. During the early part of the creation week, God collected the upper waters into either a canopy of water or it was the water that he then scattered through the atmosphere around the whole earth. 
and the lower waters into underground reservoirs of rivers of lakes and seas. Now, pay attention here, would you? This is a really fun truth that actually is a part of why this passage was written. Understand, Peter's focusing on the water here. Why is he focusing on the water? Because built into God's creation was the tool of its destruction. Right at the beginning of creation was the tool of its destruction. These existing waters, verse 5, become the reservoir for the universal flood in verse 6. That's why he focuses on the water here. And because these false teachers love their sin and willfully ignore the historical evidence and disregard the biblical accounts as a result of their self-induced blindness, their willful ignorance, they do not want to face these realities, friends. They do not want to deal with them. They discount two monumental God events in history, the creation and the flood. So it is actually God telling us his intervention into history, which then tells us that he's going to intervention in history again at the second coming. Secondly, a big oversight was the universal flood. The universal flood. Verse 6, through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. So the false teachers also intentionally ignore that this world did not continue as it had from the beginning. Peter argues that God brought judgment on the world with the flood in Noah's day. He did, which completely destroys the world, completely destroyed their verse 4, you know, <laughs> uniformitarianism argument. I mean, everything dramatically changed after the flood. You've read your Bible, right? Animal eating habits totally changed. Meat eaters. The environment on the earth totally changed. The longevity of mankind. No one here is 969 years old. You may act like it, but you're not. The flood proves that uniformitarianism for verse 4 is wrong. Their whole perception is wrong. Sadly, some Christians seem embarrassed to talk about the universal flood. Now, partly that is because uh, every nature program and science class disses it. And sometimes those who do talk about the ark describe the flood as if it were a fairy tale instead of historical fact. But you've got to get something here. I want you to feel the weight of this. The Apostle Peter, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, in this particular passage, uses the truth of the universal flood in his writing more than most preachers today. He has absolute confidence in the universal flood. You doubt the universal flood. You're not just doubting Genesis 6 through 9. You're doubting the entire Bible. The entire Bible. The world at that time, by the way, was well warned, was it not? Enoch hinted at the flood, naming his son Methuselah, which means when he dies, it shall come. Methuselah lived for nearly a thousand years, 969 to be effect. And then as Enoch's prophecy slumbered in people's thoughts, Noah was born. And at the command, at God's command, Noah began to build the ark in Genesis chapter 6, correct? And at time, they set a time at 120 years. This gave Noah enough time to build the ark and to preach to a hard-hearted humanity. The ark was a sign of judgment soon to come. The death of Methuselah was a sign of judgment soon to come. Uh, in fact, uh, the, the, the preaching of Noah was a sign of judgment soon to come, and still pre-flood humanity chose 
to willingly be ignorant of the coming judgment, exactly just like the false teachers who are denying the second coming in chapter 3 in the churches in Asia here that Peter is writing to. For a century, life continued just as before with no further warning until God closes the door and the first raindrop fell from the sky and then the water emptied on the earth for 40 days and 40 nights. The fountains of the deep broke open and flooded the entire planet so completely that the highest mountains over the planet earth were covered with 22 feet of water. That's the measurement the Bible gives us. And everyone, except for Noah and his family, died on earth from drowning or some disaster. Horrific. But a judgment. And it happened. And verse 6 says, the world at that time, look at the word, was destroyed. You see it destroyed there? That Greek word destroyed describes killing, annihilation, and perishing. Destroyed is the same word as used for one of Satan's names, the destroyer or Apollyon. The flood, <laughs> the flood was cataclysmic. Cataclysmic. In fact, the Greek word for verse 6, if you look at it, circle that word flooded. See that flooded with water? That actual Greek word flooded gives us our English word for cataclysm. It was a cataclysm of water. The flood was cataclysmic. And the people living on the earth probably never saw a rainstorm, but it occurred just as it is written. And their scientists back in that day probably could have argued, like verse 4, everything's going to go on just as it was from the beginning. Life is uniform, so nothing unusual or different would happen. And then rain fell. And then floods came up. And so they teach Christ is, he's not going to come back and interrupt constancy to, to judge the entire world. But the truth is, and you know it, and this is what Peter's asserting, God has the power, does he not? God has the power to break into the world anytime he wants by his word. He created the world by his word. He flooded the world by his word. He can come back to this world by his what? His word, which is his will. He can send water to drown or fire to burn whenever he pleases. And we know that from Psalm 115 verse 3, correct? But our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he what? He pleases. The false teachers of 2 Peter rejected biblical history, and because of their lust-driven hedonism, they became the forefathers of today's revisionist historians. They're the first ones. And the false teachers deliberately denied that both the creation account and the flood, two catastrophic events, which easily disprove their uniformitarian viewpoint. They deny it. They just won't even refer to them. Charles Spurgeon said it this way, quote, God destroyed man and swept away sin with water once. He will do it again with a different element, fire, the next time, end quote. The Bible proves that God intervenes in history, which proves the return of Christ. In fact, so much so, he's then going to describe what God is going to do. And that's point number three in your outline, the future judgment. The future judgment. Verse seven. Now notice the phrase again. I've been trying to highlight this so you'd see them. For by his what? Are you getting it? Do you understand what he's saying here? God determined the creation. God determined the flood. God determines the future judgment. By his word, the present heavens and the present earth, that's the one we're sitting on right now, are being reserved for what? Oh, come on, say it. For what? Fire. 
kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. Peter proves this point. God has demonstrated he can and will alter the course of history and judgment. In the past, he did it with water in verse 6. In the future, he'll do it with fire in verse 7. And it will be at the coming of Jesus Christ. And if the false teachers weren't so blinded by their own lust, they could see how foolish it is to deny the coming cataclysm of Christ's return. My friends, are you convinced that God can and will interrupt the course of history? Yes or no? Yes. If you are, then you are ready for Peter's application in verse 7. Because that's what he's given you is the application. The same word which created and sustains the world, the same word which was used to judge the world, is now reserving this world for a future day of judgment with fire. Now, this last week, I saw God's promise again, and some of you did too. God promised in Genesis 9 that he would no longer destroy the world with water. And he put a bow in the sky called a... Yeah, and you saw it, I saw it this week, and it was just like, yep, there you go, perfect, just in time for my sermon. And understand, there was and there is a certain judgment coming, and this judgment now will not be by water, it will be by fire. God promises everywhere. I gave you four verses, I'll list only two, look at them. Isaiah 66, 15, there are basically 50 to 60 of these. Referring to fire, for behold, Isaiah 66, the Lord will come in fire and his chariots like a whirlwind to render his anger with fury and his rebuke with flames of fire. Second Thessalonians 1 7, the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming what? Fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Now, 2 Peter 3, 7, but by his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire. That is a really funny phrase, reserved for fire. It's unusual. It means to store something. It means to put it in your treasure room, your bank. It means to have your storehouse. Now, don't miss what Peter's saying here. God already told you in verses 5 and 6 that he already had the water needed to judge the world for a universal worldwide flood. It was already there in the heavens and under the earth. It was already ready to go. Now he's telling you in verse 7 that God already has the fire needed for the future judgment by fire. That's what he's telling you. Already stored up, ready to release at his will by his word. We just forget that it's here. We just forget that at any moment he could, in a secular way, flick his bick, and that would be it. You say, Chris, is, is Peter talking about atomic bombs? Is he talking about atomic bombs? Modern atomic science has revealed, right, that the elements that make up the world are stored with power. You understand that, correct? There is enough atomic energy in a glass of water to run a huge ocean liner. Humankind has discovered this great power and the threat of atomic destruction still kind of weighs on us. But Peter, I don't believe, is describing men who will destroy the world. He's not. He's not talking about men who will destroy the world by fire of atomic bombs. No, it is God referenced here who's the one, are you ready, who's going to push the button. 
God will do it. And he will burn up the old creation and all the works of sinful men with it before Christ basically ushers in a new heavens and a new earth to reign in glory. God's going to clean up before he creates the new heavens and the new earth. And Peter says, just like the water was reserved for the flood water judgment, the fire is also stored away for the worldwide universal fire judgment. And God does not lack for the means to kindle these end-time fires. John MacArthur says, quote, In the present universe, the heavens are full of stars. Are they on fire? They're comets. And the core of the earth is also filled with a flaming, boiling, liquid lake of fire, the temperature of which is some 12,400 degrees Fahrenheit. The human race is separated from this fiery core in the earth by only a 10-mile thin crust. Far more than that, the whole creation is a potential firebomb due to its atomic structure. It's already here, friends. It's already here. Every erupting volcano reminds you that you are seated on a raging furnace just beneath the surface of the earth. You ever open your oven and when it's really cranked up high and you open it and it goes... Have you ever done that? Anybody with me? Barbecue, maybe? Okay. That's a, it's a pretty impactful thing. So here I am flying with my bride, open doors in a helicopter, 1,000 feet over the Hawaii volcano in its latest kind of offshoot, you know, its vent, and it's pouring out two, two whole swimming pools worth of lava every, every one minute. And we fly over it, and I'm not joking, I have never experienced a push of heat from 1,000 feet than that moment. Can you imagine if God just let it go? Can you imagine that? Not only that, but oxygen, which you're breathing right now, is extremely flammable. And every atom that is floating around, including you, carries a furnace of doom with its tiny heart. Listen, friends, start screaming now. There's no place to run. It's already here. And we forget it, do we not? We forget. Right now, our Lord holds these fearful fires in check, but not forever. Verse 7, they are kept for the day of judgment, he says, and the destruction of un godly men those fires are literally being preserved or kept for the day of judgment you'll stand trial when christ comes your life before christ he knows all your thoughts and intentions of your heart god will destroy ungodly men i pray that's not you nothing will be hidden from him and his judgment will be just and perfect and the judgment is already on god's calendar we don't know what it is but he does and nothing will stop it from coming nothing his word is his will, and all he needs to do is speak it, and it's done. No amount of money will buy your freedom. No argument will deliver you from sentencing. You are, and I am, are you ready, guilty before a holy God. We stand no chance of being in his presence on our own. There is no lawyer who's going to rescue you with any argument. You could have a fleet of them. In fact, the more the merrier. It's like Titanic going down. There's only one, only one who loved you so much he actually paid your penalty. And he took the punishment your crime deserved and his name is what? 
Jesus Christ. And he chose to die for your sins, which separate you from God, and take God's wrath you deserved in hell upon himself on the cross, then rose from the dead, he had no sin of his own, ascended into heaven, and he lives to provide salvation to those of you who turn to him alone. And if you're not in Christ, if it is not God's righteousness which covers you in justification, and God's Spirit who indwells you in regeneration, then you are, verse 7, look at it, the ungodly. And, meaning you will, verse 7, be destroyed. Be destroyed. That word destruction is a Greek word describing the ruination of a sinner. Its destruction is one of the strongest words in the Greek language to express the final and irreversible doom of the lost, of the sinner, of someone like you and I, who doesn't turn to Christ. The word occurs almost 20 times. It is used to describe the Antichrist and Judas as sons of perdition or sons of destruction. It is their fitting destiny. But write this down, would you? The word destruction does not refer to loss of being. The word destruction refers to the eternal loss of well-being. Do you see the difference? It does not refer to the loss of being like you're done with and you're over with and it's all over. No, never. It refers to the eternal loss of your well-being. And Peter wipes out those alleged evidences of verses 3 and 4 with the fact that in the past God has intervened in the course of history and verses 5 and 6 God will do it again by His Word with the second coming of Christ in verse 7. That same Word which created the world, which brought the flood, records the promise of His coming hundreds of times, both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. The Bible proves God's intervention into history completely anticipates the return of Jesus Christ. But these wily critics, they are not done yet. You know what they're going to do next? Their attacks will continue, and next they will say, if Christ is coming... Then, then why is he taking so long? What's the delay all about? Is he indifferent? And Peter, his blow-your-mind answer to that accusation, just using the character of God alone in the next verses, you will hear next week. That's right. So, take this home. Letter A. God is capable of anything He wants. God is capable of anything He wants. Can I hear an amen to that? Our Lord has broken into time and radically changed the direction of history and Christ will do it again. His, he is sovereign. He is totally in control. Look at Job 42.4 at the end in Job's proclamation. I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be what? Thwarted. That means stopped. That means when planes fly into the Twin Towers, God allowed that. That means when the Soviet wall comes down and instantly there are 11 new nations created in a single day way back when God was in charge of that too. So when Christ chooses to introduce the day of the Lord and begin the end time events, He will choose to do so at the perfect time, the sovereign time. On a personal scale, you can look at this individually and you can say, 
whatever's happening in your life, Christ is accomplishing whatever he wants. Whatever he wants. If you're his child, even when it's painful, he allows only and always what is best for you. Always. Whatever you're going through right now. Always and only. This promise that Pam read earlier, I want to read again. Because it applies only to Christians. Only to Christians. It says, we know that God causes how many things? All things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. He is working all the details of your life for your good and for His glory because He cares for you. He loves you. He reestates that over and over and over. And if you miss that, you miss the treasure of having a happy heart. Letter B. Are you embarrassed by the creation and the flood? Satan is a liar. He is the most gifted liar. And the world has systematically undermined creation and flood truths. Let me just spell this out one more time. Expositionally. Genesis 1 only allows for a six literal 24-hour-a-day account if you're going to interpret it in its normative sense. If you're going to read into it, manipulate it, you can make it seem something else, but it is not intended that way. The reading of Scripture is expositionally, it has to be a six 24-hour literal days. Biblically, the entire Bible also refers to six literal 24-day account and calls it true. And theologically, so not just expositionally, not just biblically with the whole Bible, but theologically, if you don't accept a six literal 24-hour-day account, then you're forced to embrace some form of evolutionary process. If you believe that God oversaw his own modified evolutionary process, then you must also embrace this truth. There was death before the fall. Because if you believe in evolutionary process, it means all kinds of animals died in the survival of the fittest in an evolutionary process before Adam and Eve. To believe that then erases the gospel truth that death is actually caused from the sin of Adam. So biblically, expositionally, and theologically, you have got to embrace a 24-hour, six-day, consecutive-day creation. Expositionally, biblically, theologically, it is true. And to be embarrassed by creation and the flood is to be ashamed of Christ. Because it is Christ who created the world. It is Christ who judged the world in the flood. And it is Christ who will bring about both the future judgment. He's the one who made creation. He's the one who brought the flood. Letter C. Are you living each day as if it were your loss? Last. Don't live lost. When Christ returns, the Bible says, be ready now. Look at Matthew 24, 44. For this reason, you also must be what? Ready. Oh, come on. Must be what? Ready. For the Son of Man is coming at an hour where you do not think He will. Ready means, are you daily prepared? Are you keeping short accounts? Like, don't let the sun go down on your anger. Are, are you using your time wisely, your money for God's glory, your service and the hope of reward? Are you living daily without regret? That's one of... Jeans and I policy. Just live without regret. Saying what needs to be said with grace and kindness to your brothers and sisters, your spouse, your children, your parents. Born again Christians live ready for Christ to come as if today were their last day. Would you live today as if tomorrow you're going to be face to face with Christ? 
live that way. And letter D, judgment is coming. And the requirement is holy perfection. I rewrote Spurgeon with these words, the flood judgment was in consequence of sin and a declaration of God's wrath against sin. So it will be with the judgment of fire. Humankind will not cause this fire. No, God intends to purge the material world from all traces of sin. And the world has been defiled with sin, and before he makes it into a new heaven and a new earth, he will cleanse it by fire. Under the Levitical law, the cleansing of temple vessels, which had been defiled, was accomplished by passing them through fire as an illustration of the intense energy needed to remove sin and to declare the Lord's hatred for sin. So God confirms his hatred for sin by dissolving the world with fervent heat and spurgeon there. My words, in the past, God destroyed millions over his hatred for sin in the flood, and in the future, God will destroy millions over his hatred of sin with fire. God hates your and my sin just as much. He hates it. And unless you embrace Christ's death on your behalf for your sin on the cross, you will know the burning heat of his wrath forever in hell. Today you must exchange all that you are for all that he is. Turn to him in repentance and depend on him by faith. Thanks for listening today. Sermon audio from the last three years is available by podcast, and a larger archive from Chris Mueller and Faith Bible Church can be found at media.faith-bible.net. And if you would, please leave us a review on iTunes. It helps a lot. Thanks, and have a great day.